0: G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. Joining me today is Dr. Peter Heyman. He's the principal scientist in climate applications at the South Australian Research and Development Institute. As the program leader to the Climate Applications Program, he works with industry stakeholders in dryland and irrigated industries to identify key climate risks and then form up the approach to the research and development partnerships to address these issues. Peter has served on the World Meteorological Organization alongside expert teams in agroclimatology was part of the team that reviewed the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Chapters on Australasia and Adaptation. Peter, thanks for for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Whereabouts, um, firstly, yeah, whereabouts are you joining us from today, Peter?
1: I'm in my office at the weight, weight um, Research Precinct, which is uh, a wonderful spot with... Um, uh, so I'm part of SARDI, but there's Adelaide Uni and there's CSIRO, um, and uh, there's some good friends and interaction across those those different groups and so. on.
0: Yeah, well, okay, we could have more
1: interaction, but we but there's some good interaction.
0: I uh, I did come through there. Oh, I'm going to say a couple of months ago now, which is scary. I thought it feels like a few weeks, but a couple of months ago, and it's certainly happening little area out on the edge of the Adelaide um, city there.
1: Mm, yes, ha- we're very fortunate.
0: How long have you called that area home? I came here
1: in 2004.
0: Okay. And um, is it feeling like home now? You're, you're well and truly entrenched in that South Australian lifestyle? Um, yeah, we,
1: we, it was a very, um, it was a good move for my family at the time with two young primary school kids who are now, um young adults and uh um it was good for us and um yeah i'm we're very fortunate and i've really really involved really enjoyed engaging with the agricultural industries in south australia and the grains industry and the farming systems groups and so on and the agronomists are um yeah they're just a really uh um, they're knowledgeable. They're they're uh, practical. They ask really good questions. Um, they give me a hard time over the forecasts and so on. But uh, yeah, I think there's there's a they're are a great group to work with, and that whole sort of um, uh, network of 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 groups and agronomists and so on, I think is is there's a lot to like about it.
0: So them giving you a hard time is probably them just uh, making sure that, well, well, I guess it, it, it's two-pronged. One, at least you know that they're taking note of, of the work you're doing, so all that hard work's not just getting wasted. And uh, two, they're getting curious and keeping you on your toes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, I think we'd all like to be able to have better forecasts of spring. Because it would make such a difference, and um, the fact that we are dealing with, um, I guess, like I, I use the line that we've got forecasts that are, uh, you know, um, too good, too good to ignore, but not good enough to be sure. So we know that there are swings with what happens historically with these big climate drivers and so on, but. Um, yeah, that unfortunately, there's still lots of people who miss out in that situation in any given year, and there's lot and, and, and we get dry months and, and it's especially in a year like this year where we are dealing with such high input costs, which if the if the season turns out okay, are, comp- are likely to be compensated by the high grain prices, but if the season doesn't turn out okay. That's that's really tough. I mean, there's really because there's a a big um, and so yeah, there's I, I can imagine there's a lot of stress there, and yet and there's a lot of hope that the forecast could tell us something. And the fact that they nudge the odds, but that's all they do, um, is is frustrating for all of us, in my perspective. But uh, but for people who are making really uh important decisions on this i can see how difficult that is
0: yeah it's uh it, it's it's the balance isn't it and it's the i guess the the beauty of farming but also the the key challenges is the unpredictability of it but peter before we jump too too deeply into kind of your area of expertise now i'd love to flip it back so this interest in agriculture and the climate we. Whereabouts did you grow up a, as a young fella, and, and and was it something that was always kind of around you and you are exposed to, or where was home as a kid?
1: Yeah, so I I grew up in my very early years in Japan, and then I was in Sydney. Um, so I used um, uh, um, my mother was had, had done medicine; was a doctor, and she had a friend who had this crazy organic farm up near um, nundal and Tamworth and I used to love going there um, and we had some other friends who had farms so that that sort of link to to family and friends that way but I think what interested me was an applied science that was useful so that so I enjoyed science and I and I guess I was interested in applied in an, an applied science, that was, um, what was was useful and uh, sort of uh, probably in a naive way turned up at Sydney Uni2 Ag Science.
0: Well, there you go. Well, so you're interested in science. Was ag just the, the natural kind of option for you? Was it, were they limited or...?
1: Probably my favourite subject was geography at school. And, um, yeah, and, and I guess that... Agriculture as a way of interacting with the landscape, or human geography, and so on. I guess in some ways, that's there's a there's a lot of crossover there. So yeah, that 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 was that was there. Probably had some wonderfully naive ideas about being able to feed the world or something too, um, which were yeah. So that that there were probably mixtures of those aspects as well. I think we'll
0: probably uh, jump into a bit of that. Shortly, but what were the career options for you presented it off the back of university and studying an ag science degree?
1: Yes, um, so I guess going through ag science, I would never have seen myself in an advisory role. I would have seen do more research. Was was that the the um, and I started in a um, I mean, and and I, but, but I. I was interested in, the, in interacting with people, so I, I actually um, uh, took a role, a junior academic role, um, which was a, this, this called tutor in agronomy. Which was actually it, it was a it wasn't a casual position; it was a full time position back in those days at university. Um, it was a full time position um, working with the uh, the students and, and so on, and doing a little bit of lecturing. And I also at that time I did a masters or in, a, in crop physiology, um, but I really had this real crisis where I just felt that we were, um, in that particular case, what I was, was on was inventing a problem and then solving it without really talking to the end users, in this case, tomato growers in the Sydney Plain. We actually, when you talk to them a little bit, what we were doing was totally irrelevant to what, what they were doing, yet we were able to convince ourselves in that pro- program and project that what we were doing was terribly important. And so I had this real crisis that that um, this is supposed to be useful for people and it's actually didn't have that link. Now, a lot of research does have that link, but that bit didn't really. And so I, um, uh, as a sort of, um, um, I thought, well, why not have a go at, um, being a district agronomist. So I applied, I, 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 did, I thought I'd give a go at the interview. And so I went to the um, rice growing area. So I was district agronomist for Collie Amberley, which is the newest town in, in New South Wales. I mean, I, well, I initially stayed in, in head office in Sydney for a bit and I was pretty miserable there and then um, went out to there. And uh, I remember turning up with a small whiteboard with these farmers, as nervous as ever, um, to this farming systems group and then realising um, they had the practical knowledge and I had a tiny bit of theory and together, I mean, they didn't want me to tell them how to plant a crop or fix a fence. They wanted to talk about these these problems with establishment or something like that. And we just worked through these things and listed them and, and so on. And it, it was, um, there was CSIRO there at Griffith and there was, the research people at Wagga, and you could just go and find ideas with older agronomists and so on. And I just, realo- I, I loved it. I, I was, um, yeah, I didn't realise how much, how enjoyable it could be. Um, so I was just working with that, with the rice growing and the corn corn growing, the maize growing and so on. Um, it was a time of the early time of the Czech system. So John Lacey was at, at uh, Daniloquin um uh, not at job but John Lacey was was uh, was at Finlay and he was um, he had started rice check, and so so that that was a really interesting time to be sort of working on those systems and so on. Um, yeah, so so that was a, a really, I guess I suddenly realised then just how that sort of interaction with the decision making of the farmers, with the um, agronomy and and uh, and so on was was so enjoyable.
0: And so you spent a bit of time out out in the bush. It's a lovely part of the world out there too. And then what did did you then start to head back down this kind of research route? Was there things that were happening and you thought, oh, like I'm impacting the kind of farmers within my district, but I want to have a a bigger impact? Or what led you back down this research route?
1: Yeah, probably to an extent um, my wife and I were – keener to be in a slightly bigger center and um uh and so there was this position of systems agronomist which which i i thought would be at Wagga, but um or at tamworth and so i um i i ended up at tamworth in in this position of systems agronomist and i've never really known if i'm how much i'm research and how much I'm an extension or how, what the diff, I mean, what, where the, where that distinction really lies sometimes I guess um, but when I was at Tamworth um, yeah so I went to a uh, in the early 90s I went to a conference on climate risk production climate risk and, and that was that that um, yeah that the, the the two the two positions from New South Wales Department of Agriculture have been filled up. So I drove my own little Chrysler Lancer and stayed at the Regatta Hotel and <laughs> turned up at this uh, at this conference, not knowing anybody really, and um, walked in on this talk by Jeff Clewett on how the SOI and, and farm dam and, and how the probability distributions had shifted with this. And, I, and it just probably touched back to that early geography stuff and so on. I'd worked in... Irrigated agriculture and then moved with the Czech systems and then moved to Tamworth with dryland agriculture. And it always struck me that um, this key point about dryland agriculture is the uncertainty about the season. And the idea then in the early 90s that that variability in the season could be some of that could be explained by what's happening in the Pacific Ocean and so on was this wonderful and exciting idea that, that 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 could happen, and, and the fact that that could be shown as ISO-hyatts moving on a map of Queensland east and west was just, I, I loved it, sort of, um, because I guess that, yeah, that was just, uh, wow, this is this is interesting. And, and at that conference, a lot of the early stages of the group at Toowoomba, the Apps Through group who developed AppSim and so on, they were presenting, um, uh, and I guess I was in awe of some I thought that they were talking about, and then I was involved with, I think, the first App Through workshop and um, then benefited enormously from interaction with um, the, the groups from CSIRO and Kunshan DPI working in that area.
0: I love how this early interest in geography has kind of followed through and it kind of just kept rearing its head just enough that uh, just to kind of engage you but so so was this move down like this climatology route and I'm probably going to have to get you to explain that to me just in terms of like what is it and is it is it a formal study or was it kind of a learned um, profession I guess to start with?
1: it's a really interesting a really interesting point. I mean I think uh, that um, people have pointed out that to an extent Australian, University departments and Australian um, departments of agriculture, state departments of agriculture and so on, have had a long history of soil science, of plant pathology, of entomology and all the. But there's actually been very little on climate historically. There was the agrometeorology. Whereas some other parts of the world, there has been a long tradition. Where in Australia... That's a much more recent tradition in some ways. And it's really come, I mean, some of it was driven. Well, obviously, there are some cases where people have gone back and done that. But in terms of departments and others, it, it, it hasn't had such a strong tradition. And really, a lot of it, well, in my mind, some of it really came out of those Queensland um, uh, agronomists of, or, or agricultural scientists um, who really. Took, went to the Bureau of Meteorology and said, what's going on with these the, the, this ENSO events and climate and so on, and really drove aspects of that. Um, and I think Australia has really benefited from the fact that this was driven by agricultural scientists rather than climatologists. So it was really demand-driven rather than supply-driven. When you go sometimes internationally, you see that it's much more the climatologists saying this is really good information to be used. But, and, I mean, you can, you can trace back that, um, Australian farmers have always wanted better guidance on what's happening with the weather and the climate and there's all sorts of, um, of uh, crazy schemes that have been followed and so on to try and do that. Um, and maybe some people would say we're not getting much better than that, but, but to an extent the, the idea of that being scientific aspects to that and the forecast and how to link that with models and so on, it was at the time a really radical idea su- such that when I tried to organise some workshops in northern New South Wales, the then chief of the organisation I was working for, I mean, I mean, he he said, this is too risky for us um, to be involved with. I, I had to run it through the Australian Initiative of Ag Science to get these crazy Queenslanders to come down and talk there because it was seen as um, as a bit risky to, to be talking about the idea that we could predict climate.
0: And because, well... It's a fascinating thing because I think with you that I'm already starting to see a bit of a, a tracked pattern and it's coming back to well, problem first right and addressing a problem. So as you touched on um in your very early university days, was that frustration that came from not actually addressing kind of the the problem uh, and, and coming up with solutions that kind of fit the research piece. But this this demand driven around climate, and as you mentioned, it certainly is still front of mind. I think well, Bureau of meteorology have just released more funding haven't they or a latest announcement around uh, around this piece so how, how did you actually land in into this area it was the mid or mid to early 1990s and you'd attended this conference well, what happened from there yes
1: yeah, so and then there were then there was um, this program called the managing climate variability program and um, which was really driven partly by well, my impression is very much driven by this um, um, wonderful uh, Queenslander who's no longer with us, um, Dr. Barry White, who basically just really um, uh, was very good at pulling things together. And uh, he got funding from the Commonwealth government and from the, the different RDCs. So, so I guess one of the one of the I mean climate is 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 something that Affects grain farmers, but also cotton farmers, and 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 at this, and, and so in some ways it, it sort of makes sense to pull resources and get the climate applications and work work happening with that, and to also contribute to the Bureau of Meteorology, and CSIRO in in terms of their climate science and so on in Australia, and and make that link from the oceans to the farms and that sort of sort of program. So so he was very good at doing that, and and um, I I was in northern New South Wales, and there weren't many other people doing that at the time, and I had those links to that group in Toowoomba, and so that, that's where the opportunities came up, and I, I then got a a scholarship funded by then Land and Water IDC and GIDC, so I got a scholarship um, to do, I guess, further study in that agroclimatic risk management area.
0: Well, there you go. That's a so the, the early routes to GADC go right back to, to you really landing on your feet and starting to get uh, up and moving with it. Sure. No, I think
1: that's, that's right. So, and and um, GADC was, was and has been and still is a really strong supporter of the then Managing Climate Variability Program and then how that's going to morph into the future. But, and I think it's also GADC really carried mcv at a really critical time when um the uh the rdc the land and water australia which was at the, the rdc was, was ended and gdc was the one were the ones who stepped forward and carried that it's now it's now run i guess carried by mla but gdc is an important contributor to that and uh yeah i think that that obvious and, and i think that yeah, there's been obviously been a lot of work on how do we use climate information with with grain growers. Um, uh, a lot of grain growers have put really sophisticated thinking into how do we do that better and so on. Um, and uh, that's not again going back to the earlier point, that's notwithstanding the fact that the there's still I think a ongoing disappointment with the level of um, level of confidence we can have in spring in, in, in the forecasts at, at these at these times and so on. And that yeah that's um and 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 that lower I mean so I think people would like to put more weight on these things than they than they than they do or they can.
0: And and jumping into this, there's a there's a couple of themes coming up you mentioned risk a few times, but in terms of um the the climate specifically like do you think with the latest innovations and technology are we are we getting better like uh, over your the period of your career are we getting better at being able to forecast what is happening or is there starting to become greater unpredictability in these seasonal conditions
1: it's a really good question and there's people better to answer that at a really statistical level, than me. So, just my observations is um, even though farmers are pretty hard markers, I think that have to acknowledge that um, the three-day weather forecast is incredibly good. Um, now, that might part of that is a is at times we can mis misunderstand what the outlook for rainfall might be and hope it's wetter than the outlooks actually saying it is. But that sort of outlook for temperature and the likelihood of rain over the coming few days is, is extremely good. Obviously as you go out further it's not, not as good and, and there's a, an, but, but people are very very familiar with watching those, those systems a bit further out and then seeing how they, they die away sort of thing. But so I think most, you know, as we're recording this, most people will be really aware that today's a sunny day, but in the next couple of days we're expecting a system to come through. How far north and south Australia that pushes, we're not sure, but the fact that it's going to make um, some people wet and some people really wet and some people further north, it, it'll be a bit of a luck as to where, where how far that, that pushes through, and, and that's really important for them. So, so I think that... That aspect is, is and, and and everybody has access to that on their phones and are watching it all the time and are really, you know, they're and they're very familiar with it and they're, they're familiar with the fact that you can see systems further out and they die away and so on. Um, the seasonal time scale, yeah, I think we, we're we understanding things better. So we used to talk only about SOI or or so, and only have statistical forecasts. Now there's a better understanding of the Indian Ocean Dipole, what's happening with the you know, the Indian Ocean dipole to the to the northwest of us, to what's happening to the Pacific Ocean, and also what's happening to, to the southern annular mode to the south of us and and where things are happening with the subtropical ridge and so on. And and groups like the Victorian colleagues. Who, Graham Anderson and Dale Gray have done such a fantastic job with the climate dogs and explaining these, these things and so on, and the, many people have done that well. Um, and I guess maybe the frustration too is that with that, we sort of say, oh, we've got this nailed. We, we, we know what's going to happen because an um, a Indian Ocean, a negative Indian Ocean dipole was developing. So if, if people have done the cognitive effort to actually understand that a negative induced dipole is positive for us, or something. that Even that is sort of something that's not. There's a rookie rookie mistakes to make there, and so on. Once you've got that, to then have a negative induced dipole and not get a really good rain is, is is inherently disappointing because you, you've got the system, you've understood it. It's sort of like you've gone and you've you've learned about a crop disease or something, you've looked at it, and so on, but and then it doesn't happen or something like it. You know, like all the opposite happens or or you put nitrogen on the crop, and instead of going green, it grows brown or something. It's sort of so you, you, we're not you, we're used to causal. This this should happen, and so on. And seasonal forecasting remains a very low signal to noise story. So I think with this forewarned, forearmed product, um, with these more ex- information on extremes and so on, it's fantastic. There's extra information, and that's re- that is really good. However, the, I'd say that the big challenge is how do we use these nudges shifts to the odds rather than which which never give us a guarantee how do we use that in decision making that's a big big challenge and i and i yeah i think there's still still a hope a lot of people have that we will get much better forecast sort of weather type forecasts at a climate scale but i think that there's good theoretical reason as to why that's not going to be the case
0: yeah and I'm interested just around um, your, your area of expertise. The, the difference or what is the difference between, say, climate change and climate variability?
1: Yeah, so, so my uh, overused analogy, which isn't original, it came from having Stephen Schneider, who is an eminent climate scientist who came as a thinker in residence in Adelaide. And um, he, he used this analogy of the waves and the tides, so you can have an argument with a kid on the beach about a sandcastle, was it the wave or the tide? And, and, and uh, the point is that it's both the waves and the tide. So they both go together. So the year-to-year variability and the longer-term changes happen together. Other people have used the idea of a, a person walking a dog so the, per- and the and the dog's on the lead running in every direction every direction but the person is going is pulling the dog in a certain way sort of thing so at any time you've got the weather running around without any memory at all so the weather the atmosphere has has very little memory it forgets it where it is in a few days sort of thing um whereas hopefully the person walking the dog has some memory of where they're going and and what's happening and so on so so i think i think we and, and the point being is that we we have this foolish discussion about was that event climate change or was it was it natural variability? Well it's always natural variability, but in a changing climate where we're in a right in a in a rising tide, the waves do more damage. And and um and I think that's been a useful analogy. I I often have farmers come up and say that they're a bit more of a wave person rather than a tide person. And I think in cities people are less aware of waves and so they're ha- Quicker to accept the tide, mm-hmm. and they perhaps don't acknowledge the waves as much. Um, I've done work internationally, and I think perhaps in, like in the Philippines, there's an overemphasis on the tide without recognising the waves enough. Whereas in Australia, perhaps there's a tendency to say it's all waves, no tide, nothing to see here. We've been through this before, sort of thing. It's all a cycle. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you yeah, know, the, the difference is about time and the difference is about um, forcing. Are, are we changing the radiative properties of the atmosphere and is that changing the long-term run of things? But, of course, within that, we're going to get the natural year-to-year variability.
0: So off the back of that, like given your expertise, like what are some... I don't know if like bad recommendations, but like really bad advice that comes in and around particularly climate. Is there, is there certain kind of pieces which you think, okay, that's just adding negative energy, negative talk to kind of the broader discussion?
1: Yeah. Okay. It's a good question. Um, So yeah, I think, I think, We did really a a lot of damage in southern Australia happened from overattribution of the millennium drought and possibly even overattribution of these terrible years in eastern Australia, eastern southern Australia of 2017, 2018, 2019, of those terrible, you know, where it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, You you thought it was bad and then the next year was even worse sort of thing. when you have that and you, you use that to say this is climate change without acknowledging there's a lot of variability in that, first of all, you do a couple of bad things. One thing is you do, I think you you sort of rubbish the memory and the past that growers have that have been bad times in the past, or in the records of their, their ancestors and, and their own experience. So you sort of you sort of you're sort of um, trashing their memory of the of the past, and their and their, and 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 that's part of who they are, and and and, and so on. Um, you're also setting yourself up for a failure because the the even the climate models that tell you this could be a bit of climate change also tell you there's a lot of waves in that, and you could get a you could get and and it did rain, and and it's very unlikely it's going to rain. So so that sort of notion of this old three, get used to it, that's your future, is is really is, is not fair science. It's really bad psychology to say to somebody that that's all there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might win the day at the time because you're making a, a, a dramatic statement, but you then really have a cost because next time, because obviously it rains, or well, the rivers run again, and then, then suddenly... You, you look like you've over, overstated that case. And, I, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not saying climate scientists did that, but, but some of their champion some of the people in the, in the media and also some, some advisors and so on did that a little bit, and then, and then you end, and some policy people and so on, and then you end up with, uh, yeah, I think we, we need to call that out, out more. We need, to, we need to be more modest about the fact that there's a lot of variability there. So that, that's one thing, I think. Um, this could be a long list. I mean, I think another another thing is uh, whatever event it is, climate experts getting on the radio and saying, oh, yes, we told you this would happen sort of thing, you know, this, this sort of, uh, you know, if, So if it's, a, if it's a cold spell, if it's a hot spell, if it's a rain, and, and that's true, that a lot of these things are are possible and we are zooping up the atmosphere and so on. But you've then got to say, well, what what event isn't climate change? I mean, so, so you, you know, you've got to be careful about that that sort of um Rapid sense of attributing everything to that, without saying, yeah, it's, it's a you know these individual events are not not in that in that in that case sort of thing. And um, yeah, and, and I think uh, I think it comes back apart to just um, there's a really nice aspect of saying we don't know what the future is, and that's and that's why some of my favourite quotes are sort of uh, you know. Um, climate scientists, Laurie Brecker, is it, saying the climate is an angry beast and we're poking it with sticks. We don't know what's going to happen. And and, and Roscano says that that's why we should reduce our emissions because we don't know. This notion that we do know exactly what's going to happen um, or someone saying until you can tell me exactly what's going to happen, we should then decide whether we should reduce emissions. Well, the honest thing is we don't know we we it's pretty clear it wouldn't won't all be good and there's a lot of we know enough to say a lot of it will be bad mm. so that's a reason to do it rather than rather than saying we know exactly
0: how everything will change and i think that's an an interesting point to kind of lead into like how do we how do we as i'll say a society but as an ag industry yeah, because like there are lots of kind of key challenges, but how do we have these bigger conversations and these deeper conversations around these issues when they are so kind of, I guess, divisive?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's.
0: We can brainstorm it now.
1: That's right. No, I think, I think, well, I think so. I guess I've. Yeah. I mean, in, in a, in my very limited suite of papers, I've used a quote from Tennyson, um, um, tread softly for your tread on my dreams. So I think one thing is to acknowledge that if you're saying to some people in a region, there's no future here or something, that, that's a pretty powerful thing to say. And my sense there is to have a look at the output of that model and how does that look for Adelaide and for Brisbane and everything, like, it, it, you know, like what you're saying to a low rainfall farming region it's not that it's not that flash anywhere else sort of thing. So so that's uh, you know if, if that I mean so there's good reason for us to reduce emissions and not not go down those tracks. But the notion that it's only the marginal areas that are going to suffer if mm. we do go down if we do have significant drying, um, and 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 if we have the the, the if we go for the worst ends of the warming and so on, then then it's it there's problems everywhere. I mean you know so so I think that's that's. Um, and, and 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 to 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 acknowledge that fact, I, I also think um, yeah I think a, a, an important part is this this balance between confidence that the climate science is pretty clear that that we are changing the atmosphere um, there are potentially really bad outcomes from that and we're starting to see some of those bad outcomes from that and so on and, and we can fix it and we should fix it sort of thing. And we're pretty sure that it's us and 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 and, and we can see that, that that's happening. But um, so there's confidence in that, but there's also uncertainty on exactly how that's going to play out in, in every situation. There's still uncertainty about these coming seasons and what's going to happen there and so on. And so it's that mixture of that. So and, and I think a nice aspect of risk and uncertainty is that we're all in the same boat. We're looking at the future and we don't know what's going to happen. Um is is that there's, yeah, be very careful about being an expert about what's going to happen in the future because you're going to be wrong a lot. So it's it's better to be sort of saying, well, we've got some of this information, we can lean this way or that way, but but we need to be modest and cautious in what we're saying.
0: Yeah, I I recently had a chat with someone and that, and they use this analogy of when it comes to looking at problems, and I think as you were kind of touching on there around. This, this climate piece and like the marginalization of certain areas, looking at it in terms of a like a me and then a we and then an us. And so your us is your big global challenge. Your we is kind of, I guess, within your community or kind of Australia as such. And then your me is actually, well, how's it going to affect my business mm. and my livelihood and then my direct community or family or whatever it is. And then if you start to bring it from that, then I think, because I, yeah, it, it's such a fascinating piece that I always um, think about, like how do we have these kind of bigger discussions because you talk about the the global solutions or global challenges and people switch off and it's like then you talk at the other end of the spectrum and someone's like, oh, well, that's just happening to those guys out there. So that's not really my, uh, my challenge or my issue. And it's how do we actually start to bring these linkages kind of in?
1: Yeah, and I, and I think it's also important to acknowledge that um there's so many grain growers you give them a sniff at decile four and they're producing remarkably good crops for their region i mean you know like remarkably good crops so so they don't they just um in terms of trying to understand where people are going to end up with these situations of course if you're in that you know if you're in low rainfall areas and you're getting one you the bottom 10 percent or something it's incredibly grim because and, and there's nothing you can do about that very much it's not technology doesn't help you because your problem is you're getting so little rainfall so no matter how efficiently you can try and use that you're still you're still in that bottom little corner of the of the french schultz graph if you like you're, you're in real trouble because you're 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 at the um your, your amount of rainfall is so small so you're however efficiently you use it but you see where these systems come just a bit out of that and they are incredibly productive and and extremely profitable. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, these notions of resilience and so on are overused words and and it's really unfair to just call regional communities resilient or something. I mean, it's sort of a, and and that, that overlooks the incredible difficulties and and challenge in this area but they sure have an ability to bounce out of a situation Um, and the grains industry is remarkable in that sense i think uh, and and what they've done in terms of ability to control summer weeds and and um, store that water um, to be to be sowing on time and, and and just pushing the system in a really really intelligent um intelligent ways and and uh hearing the growers talk amongst each other about how they're doing that and what works and the agronomists and so on it, it's I, I find those um, updates and so on just really inspiring um, and quite contrasting to sometimes when you hear some academics some academics and policy people talking about the future of you know how we're we're all going to be just running wind farms and doing this. Now, that might be the case, but but it sort of becomes this, this really unfortunate either-or situation. Like either you have a – it's almost like if I've got an idea about new options in rural areas, I think it's really good to do that. It's sort of an idea that you've got to paint a really black canvas before I paint my new bright idea on there. And you're sort of saying, well, why can't you just – why can't I be both? And, you know, like like you can, there's plenty of room. Um, we can have solar panels and successful grain farms. You know, we can have some, some biodiversity corridors and some successful grain farms and so on. I mean, the, the, the idea that, that it has to be one or the other, I think, um, you know, we can have some tree lots. And, and and I mean, there's all sorts of combinations we can think about into the future, um, which, but to do that, you haven't got, to rubbish the existing system and i guess i'd say good luck with trying that because the wheat sheep system is just uh, in one sense it is incredibly adaptive um i might say annoyingly adaptive because you can't predict (laughs) because it just it just seems to be able to 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 keep functioning through some of these really difficult conditions Um, not notwithstanding the real difficulty the, the psychological difficulty of doing that but but the idea that it's at collapse point is i think an extremely naive one
0: mm. I, I thought you were about to use the word resilient but i think it uh adaptation through necessity might be probably a lot better
1: yeah no, and that's right we, we need, to, need to be yeah and these words have to be get thrown around and become become sort of almost meaningless because they use use so much um, but yeah I, and, and even the word adaptation is something that people are sort of you know I'm I'm not adapting to climate change I'm just getting on with business and, and I guess that's part of the point that maybe maybe we need to also acknowledge that the grains industry's um, business as usual is pretty adaptive. Yeah. um now there might be a case for these transformational changes but i think even there that is probably going to be a bit of a you know it'll be a mosaic and and uh and, and two things working in parallel times and so on yeah
0: sounds like we work in the consulting industry throwing the words transformation and adaptation and resilience and Well, a few a other buzzwords out
1: there a <laughs> bit of that in the science community as well
0: <laughs> i want to jump out some of the the highlights of your career you you're involved uh, in the IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You were um, part of that team that was actually reviewing the chapters on Australasia. And what, what was that process? What was that like to be part of uh, that significant kind of piece of work? And, and is it ongoing, your involvement with them?
1: Yeah, okay. So, so I've, um, yeah, so at different times I've been involved with reviewing chapters and then in this last round, with colleagues from CSIRO here, I was a contributing author, which was actually reviewing that 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 process. I mean, that's a um. There's many people who do much more significant much more significant things in IPCC than I do, but I think what it yeah I think uh, Carl Sagan said science is organised scepticism, and he contrasted it with a sort of cynicism from Academic arts, academic humanities, perhaps at times, and a new age belief in anything, sort of thing. And he says that science is this organised scepticism, and it's a, it's not, it's a certainly an imperfect system, but it's actually the notion of the need of, of of science as a process sorting sorting things out. And and, I mean, um, evidence-based medicine is a huge example of that. And I think but at at its best in agricultural science and climate science and the interface of those, there's been some really good work and some really interesting work. And to sort of try and review that and balance it out and write short, I mean, incredibly short statements about this with some confidence and so on, it's a really yeah. It's a really interesting interesting task, and then to see how um, that gets reviewed by a whole lot of people, and then you have to comment on the reviews and respond to that, and so on. So it's a very it's extremely rigorous process of trying to come up with saying what can we say and how can we say these things with appropriate confidence um, about about the impacts and the adaptations. This isn't about the basic climate science. This is about the impacts and adaptation. Um, And and clearly Australia is, is very exposed, very vulnerable, but also in the grains industry has a very high level of adaptive capacity. And that's, so it's almost like you're turning all these things up quite high. So you've basically got potentially very big impacts, but also a lot of adaptive capacity And a lot of that adaptive capacity, I think, is hidden. It's hard to know how well we'll adapt until we're given challenges. And Mm -hmm. and so there's yeah, and 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 there's a lot of a lot of capacity in doing that.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting in terms of for for the like we're we're doing this as a southern grained piece. But do you think uh, like moving forward there there should be yeah an outlook of optimism or yeah what like first southern growers is is the future confronting on this climate front or is it is it kind of as you're saying there that it the the factors are, are nearly not playing into their hands and their favor but there's opportunity in this
1: um yeah that's a good a good uh so i, I did a in a gac update i used this quote that um was well, someone said oh I mean, optimism is like red wine. Um, a glass a day is probably good for you, but beyond that, a bottle a day isn't. And so, I think that that appropriate level of optimism is 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 important. I, I my sense is that farmers, on the whole, are optimistic. That's what happens at sowing time um, every year. They're they're um, um, and I think most farmers are technological optimists and they have good reason to be that because they've seen significant technology improvements over their lifetime and there's no reason to suspect that's not going to increase into the future. So a real mistake is to say the future challenges will have to be met with today's technologies. Well, the future challenges will be met with tomorrow's technologies and there's good reason to suspect that would would be better. I do think that yeah, I mean, without getting too preachy, it does seem pretty clear. if you read the climate science chapter of IPCC that we're at this point where if we just go as business as usual, full-on fossil fuel um and and so on, we're going to an unrecognizable future for our for our kids. And so, on. so it's interesting in some of these workshops on something, increasingly what's really nice is, is um is couples turning up with a little with a baby or something and you look at that little kid and you say well this kid who's in yeah here we are in 2022 they're likely to be around in 2100 i mean um, um i mean and and it's it's sort of sobering that 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 now we're we talking about adding 4 degrees to our heat waves or something for those i mean that's that that's an unrecognizable planet if we do reduce emissions do get the net zero 2050, I think we're talking about a challenging risk management, which is well within that. So I guess I'm saying there's good reason for optimism if we can reduce it and go down that pathway. But that optimism becomes quite foolish if we don't do something about that. And a really f- foolish form of optimism is to say we've got to solve the need to reduce emissions by sometime in 2045 or something like, you know, like, this is a problem could, because by then we'll have done so much emissions, we'll have flooded the bathroom and then we'll turn off the taps at the last moment. This isn't a problem where you can do that. This is yeah. a problem where we've got to do something earlier on. So, so I, and I think that that information is pretty stark and the grains industry has a lot to gain by being on with reducing emissions, because that leads to a future that can be adapted to. Um, um rather than a and 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 i think the grains industry is not a strong strong emitter but we have a vested interest in there being a reduction in 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 emissions and being part of that
0: and so what is it that keeps you interested in this work and keeps you involved in in the space
1: um i guess a a couple of things one is um the climates we know I, i think i'm I think I'm fairly easily amused. That's the first first point. That's that, so there may be a really high barrier, but the climate is forever interesting. I think just what's happening and, and so on. I, I can waste a lot of time just looking at weather maps and and, and and so on and just trying to see what's happening and so on. That's a how that interacts with people is goes back that human geography aspect to that. Um, and then how that's that psychology of decision making and risk and so on, and um, interacting with the Bureau of Meteorology and CSIRO and other people on on this, and both at the farming systems level and at the climate science level, it's just a lot of interesting um, aspects to that. And yeah, I think these discussions about risk with farmers and agronomists. I just find really interesting. I mean, I, I, they're they're just, it, and and I guess that goes back to a you know, back when I was at uni, I read this thing where someone was talking about the fascination with astronomy and 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 looking at the telescope of all the stars, and the writer just said, um, "But the purse. What's more interesting is the purse is a person looking at that and thinking about it." And I and I thought, yeah, that's. I, I, I like the astronomy and, and at the time I was doing spending a lot of time looking down a microscope at um, potassium stress on soybean roots and it was really interesting. But actually I thought I really enjoyed explaining to a colleague what was going on and the process of that, what are we discovering, was more interesting than what I was discovering if that made sense. So so that that aspect of, um, of trying to get that across to third-year students or trying to get that across. I mean, having that conversation with uh, with farmers or agronomists in a workshop or something or a GSE update, I, I really I mean there's a lot of enjoyment in doing that of, of sort of how do you do that? Where do you get the aha experiences? Where do you get people um, just looking at you with a blank face um, uh, and so on? So, so <laughs> that that's sort of um, uh, part of, of trying to make sense of that and explain it to somebody else is yeah, that that that's that's a really enjoyable part of it.
0: That's a really cool part of the job that I love it the, the aha moments. Like yeah, when you see people going, oh finally someone who can explain that in layman's terms or or whatever it might be, something yeah, that they and, go, that can be a plot back into my business.
1: Yeah, and 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 um yeah, you know, and that's why in the conversations afterwards. I get so many aha experiences. Like you actually learn from them about what they're thinking and how they're incorporating this stuff and so on and what they're doing in their business to manage this and, and, and how they're building systems that cope in, in these ways and so on, which is it's, it's all just, I mean, so, so it's, it's really interesting getting that, that perspective from, from them about how they're taking this information and making it practical.
0: Yeah. I've got a few more questions for you, Peter, that um, we're kind of, I guess, moving a little bit away from, uh, we'll come back to the grains piece at the end, because it's a, the fast five. It's a little bit of fun. But something which I'm interested in asking you uh, is around, what's something outside of your your work life, outside of agriculture that's unique or interesting that people may not know about you, Peter?
1: Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So prob- probably I have a. I mean, my I was brought up in Japan with my parents. My father in engineering, and my mother was a doctor, and they were missionaries in Japan. And and I I share aspects of their faith. And so yeah, that was a that was not not many people were have that experience. So that's um, that's that's a, and and that and that probably initially drove some of my interest in agriculture
0: that's really cool in in terms of this fast five so they're all somewhat grains related but they're a bit of fun so let's see where you take it what what's your favorite grain-based dish
1: um probably pumpkin and chickpea curry
0: and who would be three people you'd invite round for your pumpkin and chickpea carry?
1: Um, do they have to be alive or...? No, no,
0: it can be anyone.
1: Okay. Well, at the moment, I think uh, William Shakespeare would be one of them. Um, um, yeah, okay. So, uh, um yeah so maybe william shakespeare um and uh um i yeah i i I think uh so stephen schneider who was this climate scientist who is no longer with us and um yeah and probably barry white he was he was this uh fantastic mentor to me and um yeah and i was very sad when he passed recently so yeah there we go
0: in terms of what your first job was what was your first job
1: um a very early job was um stacking shells at coles so okay. uh, and that was that was well paid it was in nineteen seventy-eight it was five dollars fifteen an hour or something. And that at the time that was an extremely good a good a good pay for an hour's work. So um, yeah, I work stacking shelves of calls.
0: There you go. What's something that's on your bucket list?
1: Yeah, I got, I would I would really like to travel with my wife Maggie and um, I'd like to yeah, I guess travel to Europe and do some cycling and, uh, um, yeah, tra- and, and travel to some parts of England.
0: love that. And the final one is, have you got a question or something, an area that you'd like us to ask someone who's going to be a future guest on this podcast series?
1: Okay, well, I, well, maybe one of those questions is, how do you balance this uh, confidence and uncertainty? Because as soon as you acknowledge uncertainty, some people jump in and yeah. You know, so I think we, we sometimes get pushed to being too confident, but also people say, well, you know, you technical people just are always sort of um, th- th- what they love about somebody who's just prepared to to say it is to say what's going to happen um, rather than being sort of prevaricating about it so i guess that, that that notion of how do we convey the uncertainty and the confidence and people have talked about this challenge between salience and credibility so we all want to be salient to to, to say something that's useful but if there was a group of peers around would they be happy with what you're saying being having the credibility
0: mm, now that's a interesting question we be interesting to see how people reflect on that one well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat. I think it, we've covered a bit of country and it's, it's been fascinating. You've got a yeah, really interesting uh, background, I think, from growing up in Japan and, and how that shaped you, but actually then your involvement and how it's weaved through ag. So thank you for coming and joining us on this GRDC Southern Growers Series. Thank you.
1: No, enjoy it. Oh, I enjoyed mean, me, it. Me and what I think about things are some of my, two of my favourite topics. So thank you.
0: Beautiful. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.